Welcome to Hands on Health, the podcast all about living your healthiest life on the coast. I'm your host, Felicia Struvi. A couple of years ago, I started wondering if my tummy troubles were a sign of more serious issues. I stopped eating dairy and gluten. I even got tested for celiac disease. My test came back negative, and it turns out I do feel better without the dairy, but gluten doesn't seem to affect me, so bring on the bread. A lot of people are in a similar situation, and a quick web search will bring up some promising-sounding blood tests to help you solve your food mysteries. But as my guest, registered dietitian Van Lovett explains, you may be doing yourself more harm than good. Join me for episode 24 of Hands on Health. We're talking about the difference between food allergies and food intolerances, and what to do if you suspect that something you're eating is causing you problems. I'm joined by Van Lovett today. Van is the Nutrition Services Manager uh, and oversees our kitchen and the Medical Nutrition Therapy Department and the Diabetes Education Department. So she is all about food and all about getting good, nutritious food into our patients and staff here at Columbia Memorial Hospital. Welcome, Van. Thanks, Felicia. So we are chatting today about food allergies, which seem to be on the rise. I know when I was a kid, I didn't know anybody who had a food allergy. And now schools aren't allowing peanuts and peanut butter and that sort of thing because there's so many so many people who have developed allergies. Yeah, there were a number of years where the Pediatric Association had recommended that we delay offering potential allergens to babies. And as a result of that, it didn't work out the way they had planned, where it didn't decrease the allergies. It actually increased the number of children with peanut allergies. So there was like this enormous explosion of, of um, kids with these severe peanut allergies, which is terrifying for both the child and the parent and the teachers, <laughs> everybody else. <laughs> So they have changed that recommendation now, um, and they're carefully allowing for introducing potential allergens to kids that have, you know, a family history of that in certain circumstances. And parents can work with their pediatricians to, to find out what the best recommendation is for their child. But we're hoping that by changing those recommendations that we'll start seeing less of those severe life-threatening allergies in, in mm-hmm. our kiddos. Well, so what makes, um, I've heard two words. So there's allergy and then there's also people who are intolerant to different foods. Is there a difference? And if so, what is it? How do we know one is an allergy? You know, you've got a peanut allergy versus a peanut intolerance, say. So I don't know that, I've never heard of a peanut intolerance, but I suppose <laughs> it exists out there. So allergies are an immune response. It's a immunoglobin E, which we call IgE um, for short. It's an IgE mediated immune response. So your body releases these antibodies, the IgE, and that um, basically tells your body to release other chemicals that cause, you know, the allergy symptoms. There's a lot of overlap between intolerance and, and allergy symptoms, but true allergies tend to be, 90% of true allergies are from eight specific foods. So it's peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, dairy, wheat, soy, and shellfish. It's 90%. 
There's a little less than 200 foods that have been known to cause allergies in humans um, through allergies. Whereas intolerance is usually a different immune response, basically. And the reactions are not usually life-threatening as happens with a true allergy. But a lot of it is overlap. So there's the GI symptoms that a lot of people have. You have that. It's much more common with uh, intolerance, but that can also happen with uh, a true food allergy. But you see more often with the true food allergies, things like eczema, hives, wheezing, difficulty breathing, and then anaphylaxis really mostly happens with those true food allergies. And that the anaphylaxis is like when your throat and tongue swell and your airway closes down. Yes, it's right? a okay. life-threatening reaction. It's those, yeah. one of those things that people carry around those EpiPens for. Yeah. And it's interesting because in children, and most, most allergies, um, it's like 4 to 8% of children have true food allergies, whereas like 3% of adults have true food allergies. And with the kiddos, like they'll have an allergy to, say, dairy or eggs or soy as an infant that they outgrow. It's very common for kids to outgrow that. Shellfish is one that they don't usually outgrow, as well as uh, peanuts um, and tree nuts. But that kind of explains why the numbers are lower for adults in terms of true allergies. But what's interesting is that 35% of adults will report that they have a food allergy. And most of that is an intolerance. So that's like a tenfold increase over the actual number of people who have allergies. Yes. So like out of 10 of us, what, only one of us probably has a food allergy and the rest are food intolerances? Right. Okay. And, you know, and I think too, like some people will self-report that they have an allergy um, to one of the things that I've seen often in my role is I'm allergic to mushrooms. Um, And so... My job as a dietitian is to go and talk to those people and say, are you truly allergic to mushrooms or do you just have a general aversion to them? You just don't like them. And more often than not, people are like, you yeah, know, I just really, really don't like mushrooms. So I tell people that I'm allergic so that they never come near me. But I think more often uh, people truly believe they're allergic because of, you know, s- some kind of gastrointestinal problem that presents itself every time they eat a certain trigger food. Right. But there's other intolerances that are related to the food system that aren't like what you would identify as a a food thing. Um, So like dyes, artificial dyes in food. Uh, A lot of Mm -hmm. people have intolerances to that. Also artificial sweeteners, monosodium glutamate is Mm -hmm. a big one that a lot of people feel that they're sensitive to. And another thing that's interesting between the two allergy and intolerance is that there's a bit of an overlap in time for the allergy to present itself, but a true allergy usually happens within a few minutes to a couple of hours after ingesting the substance, Mm -hmm. whereas an intolerance can be up to 48 hours later. Oh, wow. So it can be hard to tie it back, whatever your symptom is, back to the food that you ate. Right. So it can be very hard to identify and hard to pinpoint, and it especially with, with children, creates this fear of eating. But it mm. also happens with adults where they are afraid to ingest much more than a few 
items that they know are safe in terms of whatever symptoms they are dealing with. Well, I know for myself, I've developed, um, and I don't think this has been my entire life. I think it's more as an adult, I've developed headaches with certain types of food. And it's some kinds of beans. It's some like fermented dairy. Yeah. So cheese and yogurt and pinto beans are like my big triggers. And I, and I get a nasty headache. And so I'm always leery about eating anything that's kind of in those families of foods. Yeah, so one of the common intolerances is to um, a substance called uh, salicylates. And that is basically a component of plants that helps the plant to fend off invaders. So most commonly uh, raisins, prunes, currants, um, but also things like curry powder have Mm. um, that substance in it. So it can be really hard to identify you know, what, what it is that's causing your symptoms, which is why, like, in order to help patients, dietitians will ask for a very specific food record. So mm-hmm. really, like, brand names of foods, amounts, time ingested, and then symptoms throughout yeah. the day. So that's just really important to try and help to tie things back to what it could be. So you have to play detective. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and brands change too. Like you can be eating something for years and you've never had a problem. You try it again and there's been an ingredient that's changed and now it bothers you. Mm-hmm. And we find out more things all the time. I saw um, a headline this morning that said uh, there was a preservative in things like Pop-Tarts and Cheez-Its that is wrecking havoc on immune systems and is causing problems for people. So, oh. and I didn't read that study, so. <laughs> but it's just, it's interesting, you know, processed food is, uh, and I hate the term processed food because technically we, we process most things before we eat it, except for like an apple. But uh, processed food is really at the heart of a lot of the, the problems um, with people's guts. Mm-hmm. Well, I have been hearing about people who are doing uh, blood tests to figure out what they might be allergic to or intolerant to. What are these tests and do you recommend them? I'm a registered dietitian. So here's my two cents is that, you know, if you're truly concerned about your health related to your food allergies or intolerances, you should speak to your physician or your primary care provider and consider seeing an allergist, immunologist, or a gastrointestinal doctor. And the allergist has a couple things that they use. They use a skin prick test, which has long been kind of the gold standard as long as people don't have horrible skin conditions, rashes, and eczema going on that's a part of the problem. Um, Then they're going to use a different kind of test, which I'll talk about in a second. But um, if that's not present, they can use these um, skin prick tests where they put potential allergens in under your skin, and then look for a reaction. And those are correct a lot of the time, but there's about a 50 to 60% false positive rate on those. And there's a number of reasons for that. You know, for example, peanut allergy. So we suspect a peanut allergy. So they do the skin prick test and it comes back positive. There are other things that are tested that are also in that same family, like so peanuts a legume. So say green beans are also tested. 
they've been eating green beans for a long time, never had a problem. It may show up as a potential allergen just because it's in that same family. Okay. So it's really important to have that dietary recall so we can rule things out. You know, if a patient suspects they have a soy allergy, they have eaten soy a number of times and have had a reaction, they come in, they get the skin prick test, comes back positive, we feel fairly certain that that's a problem. Mm -hmm. The skin prick tests are great. They can be a little uncomfortable (laughs) at the time, but uh, it's really good in identifying um, true allergies, um, especially if there's a suspicion already. But yeah, I think the the science gets better all the time when it comes to um, allergen testing and we just keep learning more and more. And there's lots of ongoing studies. The CDC is working on things. The NIH has their allergy um, section, which is made famous by Dr. Fauci. He's right. the head of that department or that unit or whatever they call it. <laughs> but if they don't want to use a skin prick test, um, for whatever reason, um, a lot of times with infants that they are worried about a peanut allergy with, you know, they have a sibling with a severe peanut allergy or a parent with a severe peanut allergy, they may do the IgE blood test, which is that immunoglobin E that I was talking about before. And those are about 70% correct based on the reading that I've done. And that can be immensely helpful, especially, like I said, if they have those um, skin conditions, Um, it can be great for environmental allergens as well. So like pollen and dust and that sort of thing, being environmental. Right. Mold. Yeah. Then there's another test that um, a lot of people can do. You can just buy it on the Internet. Um, And it's an immunoglobin G, IgG test. Um, and that is also a blood test, um, usually used as like a, a capillary uh, blood sample, so like a, a finger prick. And these generally look at 90 to 100 foods and look for an IgG reaction. So there are a number of professional societies that recommend against using IgG for diagnosis of food allergies and tolerances. And the, the main reason why, it's very controversial, the main reason why is that IgG is a memory protein. So if you ingest a food, it'll remember that food. And it may be that it remembers it because it caused inflammation, or it may be that it remembers it because it was very anti-inflammatory. So taking those 90 to 100 foods and looking at the IgG reaction and then eliminating anything that had a response can be very limiting and really, really hard on the person that is trying to eliminate all those foods. Um, It's also um, can cause malnutrition. They're not getting um, all the right nutrition um, if they're eating, you know, four or five foods. But I think a lot of people are drawn to those tests because they're having some kind of symptom. They're in some way concerned about their health. And I think most of it usually goes back to the gut. So there's some kind of gastrointestinal impact to their life. So they're gassy or they're bloated or they have diarrhea or they're constipated. 
And nobody's happy when they have no. the tough It's an awful way to live. Um, and so it's, it, it makes sense to like try and find all the information that you can. And then there's also the people that, you know, maybe they don't have a specific symptom, but they want to be doing all the best things for themselves. So they take mm-hmm. every bit of information they can find. Yeah, I know I've been through gastro trouble and I've tried eliminating dairy for a while and I've tried eliminating gluten and I've tried eliminating groups of foods that have the same chemical in them that might be causing some problem. And I don't know if it's because I'm not disciplined enough or if I just haven't hit on the right combination, but um, it hasn't done any good for me. And I feel, (laughs) well, I wind up dreaming about things like waffles. (laughs) (laughs) So, <laughs> it doesn't ultimately do me much good and yeah you, you end up feeling quite deprived right I, I do or I end up well when I did gluten-free for a while I ended up just looking for substitutes you know I was looking for the gluten-free cookies or the gl- gluten-free bread and those were way higher in calories and I wasn't as satisfied so I was ultimately better off just not eating as much of any of a, a thing that was causing me problems because I don't have food allergies in the sense of I don't have I've never had anaphylactic reactions to something I rarely get hives or something like that so it's really more just like oh the gut's not feeling great what why isn't it feeling great and could be food it could also be the fact that I need to move more and drink more and eat more fiber. Yeah, right? So there's, uh, there is that component to um, your gut health. Anybody knows that's ever been under a great amount of stress that generally that can create tummy troubles as well. Um, it's also not good for the immune system. 70% of your immune system is in your gut. So you definitely see problems in times of, of stress. Um, poor diet can be mm-hmm. a reason behind it. And that often comes from these huge elimination diets or highly processed food mm-hmm. diets. Also, there can be changes to the microbiome in your gut. Like if you're on antibiotics, for example, or you get an illness or some kind mm-hmm. of overgrowth of bacteria or virus, that can totally change the gut. There's also environmental toxins. Hey there. Felicia, thanks for listening. I'd love to include your questions or comments in an upcoming episode. To leave me a message, please call 503-338-4654. If you've got a health question, I'll do my best to get you an expert answer. Again, that number is 503-338-4654. Now let's get back to our guest. So are there ever any um, allergies that seem to go together? Yeah, there's actually, there's a lot of that. Um, It's cross-reactivity, they call it. But one of the really common things is oral allergy syndrome, which is like a pollen food allergy syndrome. So someone may be allergic to birch pollen. And then if they eat cherries, for example, they'll find that they're mouth will tingle or itch. And in severe reactions, they can actually have a swelling of their throat and 
even anaphylaxis. So there's there's a long list, um, and you can you can kind of look that up if you suspect it: pollen pollen food allergy syndrome or oral allergy syndrome. And there's long lists of different potential reactive foods and spices. Well, there's different spices oh. that can cause that problem. I have um, somebody that I work with that can't be around cumin. It mm. makes her cough and cough. And I think it's probably related to that. That makes sense. It's like super concentrated, huh? Yes. Okay. So it's it can be really hard to pinpoint really what the root cause is, which is why it's really important to talk to your primary care provider and, yeah. and um, seek out the right kind of referrals for, for what you have going on. Don't play Russian roulette in the dark with your food right. allergies or intolerances. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's not fun. And, you know, you try and go out to dinner with your friends and you're, you can't eat anything, right? It, like, you yeah. can't, it's, it affects your social life. It, it can affect family life. Um, you end up going hungry a lot more than you should <laughs> or, or overeating on the, you know, two or three foods that you can actually, you feel like you can actually eat. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a huge movement towards this whole food plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. And there is, I mean, we could talk for days just on that topic alone. But one of the recommendations for healing your gut is really to, to focus on eating these whole nutrient, high fiber, plant-based foods in their most natural form. So like, for example, with wheat. So wheat is a big bad guy out in the world right now um, and has been for a number of years, like you were talking about with the gluten-free movement. It's huge. A lot of people do have a gluten intolerance, but is it every time you eat bread, but not if you have a wheat berry salad, for example. So that can make a difference. Another thing that's interesting about intolerances is that um, it seems to be more dose dependent, like you were talking about if you just eat less, sometimes that's better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a problem with eggs. I cannot eat an egg at all. Not at all. Yeah. Um, but I can have cookies and cookies have and eggs. they have eggs. <laughs> so, yeah. and I have no problem with cookies. Cookies, thankfully, cookies are fine. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's common. Um, and kind of one of the ways that we kind of differentiate between, well, is that really a true allergy? You know, the, a true allergy, you can reproduce that result every single mm-hmm. time you have it. Mm-hmm. I, I have found that with, uh, like I said, fermented dairy, sour cream. I love sour cream. It was my favorite condiment growing up. I would slather it over every potato I ever met. But... <laughs> I get, I have headaches with it now, but I have found, I've been playing with it. Uh, if I just have a little bit, if I just have like a teaspoon instead of two whopping tablespoons full of it on my taco, I do much better. If I go for black beans instead of refried pinto beans, I do better. And and so it definitely, for me, does seem like there are some dose dependent things. I don't have the reaction if I don't overdo it. If I don't overindulge in that thing that I really love, but doesn't love me back. Right. The FODMAP diet actually originated from a university in Australia, and it seems to help people with a lot of digestive issues. Like I said, 
Um, a lot of people with the that are concerned about intolerances and allergies also have some gut issues going on. So one of the most common is IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so you can have irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea or with constipation or with uh, alternating, as they call it. So oh. <laughs> all of the great things. So <laughs> they created this diet that helps to reduce and eliminate problem foods. It's all the fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Um, so short chain carbohydrates. They tend to be really poorly absorbed and digested by a lot of people. Um, and so they cause a lot of that painful gas and bloating. Um, so even with the FODMAP diet, you can Google it and there is an expansive list of foods. All of those might not be causing you problems. <laughs> so it can be really important to, to work with a dietitian or your health professional to help to identify which foods are really causing the problem and, and which foods seem to be fine. Yeah. I have um, a lot of people, when they hear that I'm a dietitian, they start talking to me about their gut issues. It's, a, it's something that I never anticipated when I was going through school that people would be like, oh, I have a question for you. And it's almost always about their gut. <laughs> So I hand out the high FODMAP foods list many people to, to help to look at that and identify, you know, and almost always I can hand it to them. They're like, oh, yeah, garlic every time, you know, or mm -hmm. agave syrup. Oh, that's it became people started using it like crazy right. about five or 10 years ago. Um, and that's a that's a common one. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it can, it's really very individual. We're all unique just like we like to think, um, <laughs> we're all special. And uh, so identifying those foods and eliminating them as much as possible. But then also working with someone so that you don't wind up eliminating all these things and never introducing them back into your diet to make sure that that, whether or not you can tolerate something. Like you said, you could have four foods that you eat. So you yeah. need to introduce foods back if you can tolerate them. And it can be a problem, you know, for example, with gluten. If you eliminate gluten from your diet, it can be harder to detect something like celiac disease, which is an mm -hmm. autoimmune disorder. Um, and celiac disease affects the lining of the gut. And so many people with celiac disease find that they have poor digestion, but they also um, are quite malnourished because they're not able to absorb their nutrients mm. as well as they should be. So if you suspect that you have something like that, going to your provider and getting tested for that, you need to still have gluten in your diet to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, it will come back inconclusive or negative when there really is a problem. And with the gluten sensitive or the uh, celiac disease, it can be a, just even the tiniest amount of gluten. So, you know, when you see the on those packages produced in a facility that also um, produces wheat. Processes wheat, yeah. Yeah. People with celiac disease want to stay away from those items, whereas mm -hmm. the rest of us, we might be yeah. Kind of like your egg allergy and, or your egg intolerance, not allergy. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that we could spend a lot of time talking about these other topics and I hope to get you back to talk about the the gut microbiome because that's definitely fascinating to me and I've I've been reading a lot about it in the last couple of years because 
as I said, I've got my own things and I've been trying to figure them out and I have been tested for celiacs and I've been, you know, I've gone through some of these tests and, and they haven't yet worked for me. I haven't yet figured it out just through observation and doing some of the food journaling and, but it can be a long process. It can, it can. And um, I think the microbiome, we, we learn more about it all the time. Um, and it is absolutely fascinating to read about, to study. I think that for a lot of people being able to heal that gut microbiome and get it working the way it's supposed to and properly colonized, you know, eating proper fiber and all of the, the plant nutrients, if they could truly get healed, they might find that they're not intolerant to as many things as they think. Yeah. Uh, well, fascinating. I know my problems started after I had a, you know, a parasite in a third world country and a heavy dose of antibiotics and all the regime. And yeah, my, my well, gut wasn't happy. With that story, you know, I had amoebic dysentery in Mexico once myself and was on quite a, a rigorous uh, amount of, of medications and and. You know, when, when you've gone through something like that, I mean, it, it's it's obvious, right? You go you go through that, you start to get better, and then you do something like drink orange juice. You're mm. like, oh, God, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you can tell that, that if your gut is irritated, that it's not going to like certain things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, gut microbiome next time. Next time. Well, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always good to talk about poop and whatnot with you. (laughs) Dietitians are fun. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Van. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Felicia Struvi, and this has been an episode of Hands on Health, brought to you by Columbia Memorial Hospital.